what we have here in this story is the trial of two people, really. And as I was reading and preparing for this story this week, um, I was reminded of a lot of movies that I love and books that I love that often have the climatic scene be a courtroom scene, you know, a trial scene. I know some of our attorneys have always dreamed of being the attorney that says, you can't handle the truth, or I want the truth, or something like that, you know, a la Tom Cruise saying that to Jack Nicholson and a few good men. Okay, maybe that's just me, and God called me to be a pastor instead. But oftentimes, uh, courtroom scenes, you know, they're highly dramatic. They're important. They're the climatic event of so many of our favorite stories, and really, that's what we see happening here. Jesus, this morning in our passage, is on trial. But Jesus is not the only one on trial in this story. Peter, Jesus's, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, is also on trial. Both of these men face a test. Both of these men are asked to give testimony, to be witnesses for what is true. And what we read in our story this morning is that Jesus is a faithful witness. He stands firm and gives true testimony about himself. But Peter... Well, Peter is faithless in this case. He fails spectacularly. Now, as we've been making our way through this story, the ancient book called Mark's Gospel, we've seen now that Jesus has been arrested because Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betrayed him into the hands of the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. And uh, they've wanted to kill Jesus for almost the entire gospel, and now they finally got him. And we saw the tragic ending of our story last week, that everyone left Jesus. All of his disciples took tail and ran. They fled away. And in verse 15, we pick it up again. Jesus is led into the house of the high priest himself, of Caiaphas, and put on trial. And meanwhile, we also follow Peter as he trails behind Jesus and then has his remarkable failure in denying Christ three times. And so what I want to do this morning is compare and contrast in some sense what Jesus does and what Peter does. And hopefully, as we look at what happens in this tale today, we will be able to see how, through the Holy Spirit, this is an extremely relevant, important, and perhaps transformative story for us right now. Here's the main idea that I want you to understand. Jesus faithfully restores screw-ups and failures. Amen. Jesus faithfully I'm already fired up with the amen this early in the sermon. Uh-oh. Jesus faithfully restores screw-ups and failures. Three points, okay? We want to see Jesus' witness, Peter's failure, and Peter's restoration. Jesus' witness, Peter's failure, Peter's restoration. Jesus faithfully restores screw-ups and failures. Let's look first at Jesus' witness Verse 53 through verse 65 of Mark 14, what David read for us, we see Jesus on trial before what's called the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the supreme court of Jewish religious life back then. And we notice there in verse 55 that Mark tells us that these people were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. In other words, this is a kangaroo court, right? This, This trial is a sham and a mockery. They know they want Jesus to die. They're just looking for a legitimate way to make it somewhat basically legal. 
They already are looking for false witnesses, and they're just trying to get enough people whose testimony will agree so that they can sentence Jesus to death. They've been wanting to do that since all the way back in Mark chapter 2. And so we see that they find these false witnesses, but they can't find anyone whose testimony will agree, verse 56. And then eventually they get people to say that 58, Jesus said he will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days he will build another not made with hands. They think this is a blasphemous statement. This man is claiming things, authority and power that only God himself can claim. And so eventually the high priest himself stands up in his own room with the Sanhedrin surrounding him and Jesus standing before him, powerless, weak, you know, handcuffed, and waiting for what's going to happen next. And the high priest asks Jesus, really kind of the money question, the bottom line question, verse 61, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And, you know, throughout Mark, Jesus has been, in some ways, hesitant to reveal to us who he really is. And yet here he speaks very clearly. He doesn't say anything else in the trial. He is quiet the entire time as these false witnesses are raised up against him. They even say, have you no answer to make, Jesus? But here Jesus, when he's asked this direct question by the high priest, says, I am. This is one of the climaxes of Mark's gospel. I am. And you will see the Son of Man using language here from the Old Testament, seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus witnesses for himself here. He gives testimony for himself. He stands for himself. And so these religious leaders who have been after him for a long time sentence him to go to the Romans to confirm their death penalty sentence. They think that this is blasphemy because no Messiah would ever be in the position that Jesus finds himself in here. Helpless, frail, weak, and silent. Now, there's a lot we can learn from this part of the story. But one thing that strikes me is how silent, by and large, Jesus is throughout this ridiculous legal proceeding. Did you catch that? I mean, he only says one thing, and that's when he's asked a direct question. Jesus doesn't feel the compulsion to defend himself here, you see? not even against all of those ridiculous and unjust charges that are being made. Um, You know, you can't get more ridiculous than accusing Jesus, God's son, of blasphemy. I mean, that is what we call irony. He is God himself and yet being accused of blaspheming against God. And yet, Jesus is able to take it, right? Partly because he knows that he came to be the suffering servant, but also because he is confident Listen, he is confident in God's love for him and in his own identity, even in the midst of this ridiculous mockery of a trial. That's a great lesson for us here. Can you hear it today? Listen, you are not required to defend yourselves against every offensive word or remark or attitude. That's one thing we can learn from Jesus here. And listen, we want to do this all the time. At least I do. And I suspect that you're not so unlike me that you don't also at times. I mean, think about it. Don't you just hate it when someone says something about you that's a lie? Don't you hate that? I mean, don't you hate it when you're unjustly accused of something that is not your fault? Or maybe when you're not treated fairly? 
especially if it's because you're trying to be a Christian and follow Jesus and live and act with integrity, right? Don't you hate it when someone has an opinion about you or an understanding about you that is just flat out inaccurate? Isn't that frustrating, right? Um, I know that when I'm faced with that, I immediately want to plead my case. I want to defend myself. I become like, you know, my spiritual, emotional missile defense system goes into alert. Beep, beep, beep. You know, the system's coming up. I'm ready to take on any nuclear threat that's coming my way. And my missile defense system is advanced. And it knows exactly when someone is slighting me or saying something that's slightly false about me or misrepresenting me in Anyway, I want to defend myself. I want to make sure I'm seen and treated fairly. Part of what we can learn from this part of Jesus' story is that we don't always have to waste all the energy that that requires. You know, when we are confident in the love of God the Father for us and in our identity as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we can take down We can take down the missile defense system, right, that we love to raise up over our lives. Now, I'm not saying that we should always, you know, roll over and just take it. Wisdom is required very often in scenarios. Yet often, often, our immediate instinct to self-defense is a result of our own insecurities, right? And our own desires to always, at all times, be pleasing to everyone, The gospel tells us that we are secure in Jesus. We are completely accepted by God the Father in Jesus. That's the good news. And that enables us to live with people sometimes treating us wrongly or speaking poorly of us. We don't always have to be our own lawyers. We don't always have to advocate for ourselves. Jesus says elsewhere, right, in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is able to just not defend himself here against what is really radically unjust. And there's a lesson for us there as well. Jesus is witness. Second, we see Peter's Peter's failure. As Jesus is making the good confession, right, in the house of the high priest, Peter's down in the courtyard. We see that in verse 66. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, Peter has just said to Jesus, it's a couple of weeks ago for us, but it's like an hour ago for them. Peter has just said, I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. I will go to death with you. You can count on me. I'll be there right with you to the end. And really, we see, to be honest, that Peter does better than everybody else. I mean, everybody else fled, but Peter, at great personal risk to his own safety, follows Jesus at least to the point of his trial. And he's waiting below where Jesus is in the house of the high priest in the courtyard, trying to warm himself around the fire. And surely he remembers, you know, surely he has in his head the promise that he made to Jesus like 45 minutes earlier. And he's doing his best to keep it but he can't go any further without, you know, getting arrested. He's not sure what to do, so he's sort of gathering his composure and sitting by the fire, and a little girl walks by. And she walks by, she kind of glances at Peter and keeps walking and then stops. And she turns around and she looks at him again and she says, hey, you were with him. You were one of his followers. Jeez, Peter's immediate, I mean, immediate missile defense system, right? 
he senses the nuclear warhead on the way straight to his heart. And he says, I neither know nor understand with emphasis. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And the girl says, all right. And she walks about five or six more steps. And she turns around. And she says to the crowd, the soldiers and the authorities and the other people by the fire, and she says, hey, doesn't this guy look familiar? This guy's with Jesus. I can't be wrong. I'm certain. I've seen you before. Jesus has been around the temple, and I know that you've been with him. And Jesus says, now to everyone. Have you ever been in a situation like this where someone says something about you, and you're like, oh, no, no, no. And then that person says to everyone else, isn't that true? And then you're like, oh, no. No, 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 no. Second denial. And then the girl walks off. But the people standing around the fire say, you know what? You sound like a Galilean, you know, like a Texan. When I lived in Philadelphia, you sound like you're not from here. I'm like, I'm not. Proud of it. Go Cowboys. You know, he's got a Galilean accent. And that gives him away, verse 70. You're a Galilean. Certainly you're one of them. And then what Peter does, third denial. And guys, this is really bad. This is bad. Verse 71. He began to invoke a curse. The ESV says, a curse on himself and to swear I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, the ESV, I hate to do this, but I've got to do it here. This translation gets it a little bit wrong. When the word used there in the original language, the word for curse, that's a verb. And it's a word you might be familiar with in the original. It's the verb anathematize. Anathema. And Peter is not... It's not a reflexive verb. That is, it has no referent. Peter is, uh, Peter's not invoking a curse on himself here. That's what I'm trying to say. Peter here is cursing Jesus. Peter is saying, you know what he's saying. I mean, he is screaming profanities, raining down damnation on Jesus. Why would he do that? Because he wants everybody to know that he is not one of Jesus' disciples. Only, you know, no one who talks about their master like this could ever be a follower of that person, could ever be a disciple of that person. So Peter wants these bystanders to have certainty. He wants to make it clear that he has nothing to do with Jesus. He calls Jesus this man of whom you speak. You see that there? Now, one of the commentaries says, this is a strikingly dismissive way of Peter to speak of the person whom he has previously hailed as the Christ. Now, that's an understatement. I mean, imagine it like this, okay? Imagine you're living in Berlin in, say, 1938, 1939, 1940, and Jewish people in your neighborhood are being rounded up right and left by the SS of the Nazi party. And imagine that you have some good Jewish neighbors, some good friends of yours, and you're hiding them down in your basement And they've been down there for a while, and you've tried your best to take care of them. And then one day you hear a knock on the door. Bang, bang, bang. You look through your peephole, SS guards. And you open the door, and you get a gun pointed directly between your eyes. And they say to you, are you harboring any fugitives in this home? And your immediate response is, they're down in the basement. Get them out of here quickly. And and not only do you do that, but take out your swastika armband and strap it around your bicep as you lead them down to the basement to take away your friends to the camps. That's what Peter's doing. I mean, this is, this is a spectacular failure. I mean, this is a major 
screw-up. This is an overwhelming slight by Peter to Jesus. What he does here is just almost unspeakably awful. What a colossal mess. And immediately after Jesus screams down a curse on Jesus, the rooster crows, verse 72, a second time, just as Jesus, minutes earlier, had predicted. And the text for the day ends with Peter breaking down and weeping, weeping. Can you imagine that feeling? Can you get a sense of the guilt and the shame that must have just crushed Peter in that moment. Um, he wanted, you know, he wanted to bury his head under a pillow and never come out. He probably cried, you know, when you cry until your eyes are dry, you've got no tears left, and, and your chest is just hurting, and your head is woozy. Can you imagine that? Listen, the Bible the Christian scriptures, are, they're supremely honest about the reality of the human condition. About the things that people are capable of doing and feeling. And we see that so vividly portrayed here. Have you ever experienced the sort of regret and guilt and shame that we can imagine Peter must have been experiencing here? Have you ever felt that? Um, maybe you have. You know, some of us have had such profound failures and made such huge mistakes that really our lives ever since have been an effort to outrun the guilt and the shame that have been chasing us as a result of that event or that word that we said or that relationship that we damaged. You know, some of us, probably most of us, I might go so far as to say that, probably most of us have major screw-ups in our story, that when we think about it, it just, you know, it just makes our stomachs turn. We lose our appetites. We want to hide. We want to run and get away. We feel the overwhelming need to be hidden. But listen, I want to let the gospel of Jesus Christ speak hope to you who have had spectacular failures like Peter, who have had colossal screw-ups like Peter. The story does not end here. God is not done with Peter after his denial, after his failure. And so I want to show you last, okay, Peter's restoration. And and how do we see this here? Where in the story do we see Peter's restoration? It's clear later in all four of the gospel accounts, and we'll see that later on in the sermon series. But, But for now, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to look in the story. I want you to just look at the story. What do I mean? Think about this. The fact that Peter's story is in the gospel of Mark at all is proof of his restoration. If you've been with us as we've been going through Mark, I've said multiple times that really Mark is Peter's gospel. Peter is the main source, the main source of eyewitness testimony that Mark is using to tell this story, to recount these events that have happened to Jesus. Proportionally, compared to the other Gospels, Peter is mentioned more in Mark than any of the other three. Peter is all over the place. There's never a story with the disciples where Peter is absent. He's always there. And we know from later scriptural teaching that Peter goes on to become the leading apostle and teacher of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. 
And later in his life, he is martyred. He is put to death because of his profession in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, Peter is present throughout Mark. So, so given that fact, why would Peter, who basically has carte blanche authority over what gets into Mark, into the story, why would Peter have allowed Mark to put this horrific story of his own personal failure in the gospel, knowing that it's going to be spread rapidly and read by thousands of people. Listen, the only rational explanation for why Peter had Mark put this story with all of its lurid detail into the gospel is because Peter wanted people to know that Jesus Christ faithfully restores failures and screw-ups and that he is exhibit A. There's a great New Testament scholar named Richard Bauckham who wrote this wonderful book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And uh, it's a great book for theology nerds. Um, I love the book. And at one point he writes this. He says, no one in the early church other than Peter himself would have dared or wished to highlight the weakness and failure of the revered apostle with the candor Mark's narrative does. Exposing Peter as a failure has the purpose of producing a kind of self-recognition that was necessary for Peter's future discipleship. As a side note, this is a strong statement for the historical reliability of the gospel accounts. If the church made this up, you know, 400 years later to consolidate their power and to tell the story they wanted to tell, there's no way they're going to include in the story their chief leader's massive screw-up The only reason this gets in Mark is because it really happened. And the only reason this gets in Mark is because Peter wanted to be in there so that people could understand what Jesus does when we have colossal, major screw-ups. Three pieces of application real quick, okay? Three more things I want to say about this, and then we're finished. First, this story of Peter, his failure and his restoration, shows, I think, fundamentally how unique Christianity is among all other ways of thinking, among all other cultures, among all other world religions. Here's why. Most people and most religions put their strongest and their greatest at the pinnacles of leadership. Is that a fair statement? It's probably true, right? What does Christianity do? Again and again, it's not just Peter. Again and again and again, it elevates the weak and the failures, and the marginalized. It elevates people whose lives are full of junk that God has cleaned up for them. In any other religion and in any other culture, there is no chance of Peter ever being restored to a position of leadership in the church, especially in shame and honor cultures, where what you have done or said in the past says something about your people, right, as they say in the South, about your culture, about your family. If you've had something as shameful as Peter has, you're done for forever. But that's not what happens to Peter. And that, I think, speaks to the uniqueness of Christianity. In any other world, Peter would have become persona non grata, right? But in the story of Scripture and through the power of the gospel, think about this, six weeks after this, six weeks, Peter preaches Pentecost, the great, possibly the greatest sermon a Christian preacher has ever preached. 3,000 people get saved. The Holy Spirit is dumped down on him. Peter is completely transformed. 
eight weeks after this, eight or two months. So if that happened to you yesterday, by May, you are being put in Roman prisons because you refuse to deny Jesus along with your comrades, the other apostles. Peter is transformed, we see. He's transformed from a person with colossal failure defining him to an important leader used to grow the early church. That's something that only the gospel can do, I want you to see. That tells us that in the gospel alone can people with sordid pasts not be disqualified from further effectiveness later in life. I want that to encourage you. God can use you and work through you no matter your past. Okay, second, how exactly did Jesus restore Peter? And furthermore, how can Jesus restore us if we've had failures and screw-ups? Well, he does it by being condemned for us. There's a great hymn, Man of Sorrows, what her name says, in my place condemned he stood, right? My pardon sealed with his blood. The gospel tells Peter and tells us that because of Jesus, we are not condemned by our failures and our screw-ups. Now, remember in the big picture here, okay, what's going on? Jesus is being condemned even though he's faithful. And Peter is going to be forgiven even though he's unfaithful. Peter, charged with something that is true, gets off. And Jesus, who deserves to get off, is condemned. So through Jesus' condemnation, Peter receives pardon. And through Jesus' condemnation, we receive pardon. Jesus takes our place, you see. He substitutes himself for us. And because of this, and this is good, you no longer represent yourself. Jesus represents you. You no longer have to answer for your failures and screw-ups because Jesus has already answered for every single one of them fully in the cross. Peter was transformed when he finally understood that his denial, his horrible betrayal of Jesus would not define him forever because the death of Jesus would define him forever. So Peter was marked not by his failure, but by Jesus' faithfulness. When he understood that, he was changed. He was, able to, he was able to rest in his identity as a forgiven failure. And when you understand that, you can rest in your new identity as a forgiven failure, as a saved screw-up. It's what 1 John chapter 2 means. Verse 1 and 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, and it's not us. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. That's what the gospel says. He represented us at the cross as a substitute. He died and paid for our screw-ups so that we can forever be accepted by God the Father and welcomed into his merciful embrace. Three, point three, by way of application. How practically can that truth, the gospel, that Jesus takes your place and you take his place, how can that truth 
impact you in tangible, practical ways. First, it erases your guilt. When we can see that Jesus restored Peter and that Jesus freely, listen, it is free. He loves to do this. He willingly puts himself in your shoes and then places you in his shoes so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees you just like he sees Jesus, his own beloved son. When, when you can get that, no matter how severe your past failures are, you can stop trying to outrun your guilt. It isn't chasing you anymore. Jesus caught it and killed it. It's gone. You are not seen any longer as guilty by God. Guilt does not have to haunt you or define you because Jesus bore all your guilt. He took it away. God does not see you as guilty. No matter what you've done, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, it doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how colossal your screw-ups. It doesn't matter how much you hated God. It doesn't matter what sort of marriages or families or children or parents you've ruined. It doesn't matter. If you trust Jesus, you are not guilty. You're free. You're righteous. You're loved by God just as much as Jesus himself is loved by God. Guilt has no power over you. You're dead to guilt. And listen, that creates a profound spiritual freedom and release. It erases guilt. Secondly, it allows us not to be controlled by human opinion. You know, if you've had a major failure, you always worry about other people finding out or what other people are going to think about being judged, right? The gospel allows you to really trust and believe what is true, that God is not going to judge you. He has judged Jesus for you. In fact, God commends you. God loves you and delights in you as a father delights in his son or daughter. And so if you believe that, if that's working in your heart and transforming you over time, you know what? It doesn't really matter what other people think about you. You can stop having your life dictated and defined by a fear that other people are going to know the real you and reject you. If God knows the real God knows you better than you know you. And he doesn't reject you. He accepts you fully and welcomes you into his grace. If that's true, then it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal that other people might not understand you rightly or might misrepresent you or might not think you're so special. You don't have to be dominated or governed by other people's opinions. You know, that also gives you just an amazing freedom and, and boldness and joy it's, it's available. That's available right now for you in the gospel. Last thing, okay? How does this practically affect you? It allows you, the gospel allows you to relate to other people well. Especially people that are far from Jesus. Right? You know, as a Christian, as someone who's trusted the gospel, you know your screw-ups and failures, so you're not trying to be a Pharisee. You're not trying to dictate and judge everyone else's certain level of righteousness or unrighteousness, and you also know the grace and love of Jesus for you, so you have this winsomeness and this hope and this, this peace about you. You know, it allows you, frankly, when you get this, it allows you to not take yourself too seriously. It allows you to just, you know, you can relax. 
you're safe. You're secure in Christ. God's for you, man. He's good. That's not going to change. Chill out. You know, stop being such a jerk and so crazy religious and judgmental. But also stop just not caring at all about other people, you know? When you can get that, that Jesus cares about me this much, he was totally righteous and he got condemned, I'm totally unrighteous, I've had all sorts of screw-ups, and yet Jesus forgives that completely, then maybe you can stop being you know, so self-righteous and you can also actually really care about people and give yourself away to people and have a sense of humor and not take yourself too seriously and just sort of enjoy life. You, you, you sort of just, well, you become a new person because you have a new identity. Listen, grace destroys self-importance. It destroys that sense that you have to always have your T's crossed and your I's dotted or else someone's going to find you out. Listen, God's already found you out. And he loves you. That's why Jesus came, you know. And only people devoid of self-importance like this can ever really love others and be good witnesses to the truth. So there's all sorts of ways in which grace transforms us. I'm just going to stop there. So let's sum it up like this. Peter learned this, that Jesus not only sort of was dragged, kicking and screaming to the cross to pay for our sins, no, Jesus willingly and faithfully forgives and restores people with the past, people with failures, people with screw-ups, people who have made a mess of their lives. And when you believe that, man, it makes a difference. It begins to change you. It begins to work on you. It begins to give you hope. It begins to give you relief. Grace changes everything. Let's pray.